Well, good morning. It's great to welcome you to Alliance this morning. I understand we have some guests all the way from Cincinnati. Where are they? Yeah, right, yeah, right back there. Okay, so uh, Scott and Carol Burns and family are here, and I didn't know until yesterday that they were coming. I'm a little irritable about that. I actually saw it on Facebook when she had a picture of the Wendy's light, and it captioned read something like the, the uh, intersection we lo- all love to hate or something. But anyway... Uh, so so they, they're here this morning, and by, uh, by, I don't know, maybe by applause, wait, by applause, those of you that the next time that they're in town would like to hear Scott Burns preach, would you just, yeah, thank you very much, yeah. I would love that. <laughs> Known that boy since he was a junior at ASU, and uh, so very thankful that you guys are here today. Hope you have a good time of rest. If you've been at Alliance for any period of time, you know that I usually spend some time on the introductions to my sermons. I'm told that by speech people that you have about 30 seconds to grab the audience's attention. If After that, you're lost cause. I, I try to then to think of something catchy, whether it's a story or a picture or a humorous anecdote. I'll grab something maybe from the headlines or my personal favorite, something from history, Well, this morning, uh, we arrive at our 76th sermon in the book of Mark. This is now volume five of of notebooks, uh, which means I have written 76 introductions to include this one, including holidays, vacations, etc. We have been in the gospel of Mark for almost two years now, studying the life of Christ. Can I suggest that everything that I have written, everything that I have said, everything that we have studied over the past two years has in a sense been introduction. It is now time for the main event. In fact, you could say everything that has been written in Scripture up to this point, all the way through the 39 books of the Old Testament, most of the way through the Gospels, has been introduction to the main event. This event was spoken of as early as the Garden of Eden when God was said to the serpent regarding the seed of the woman to come, you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. It was the ultimate fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham, through your seed all the nations of the world will be blessed. It was the fulfillment of, uh, uh, of every Passover lamb, ever sacrifice, causing Paul to write, for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. In fact, it is the antitype to every Old Testament type in the Levitical sacrificial system. Every animal ever killed, every offering ever given, every lamb ever sacrificed point to the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. It is the ultimate subject of every prophet, stated most clearly, perhaps by Isaiah. But he was pierced, for our, uh, pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Main event, of course, is the cross of Jesus Christ, the passion of the Christ. In Mark chapters 14, 15, and 16, we arrive at the, at the climax of redemptive history, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. 
It is the event to which all preceding events point forward. It is the event to which all history looks back. It is the apex of history. Even as we look forward, uh, as we've done over the last few weeks, to the second coming of Jesus, we can only do so because of this main event to which we look back. It is the central event of the epistles, of Paul's ministry, causing him to write, For I have determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's all I know. It's all I want to know. It's all that matters. I told you some time ago that this culmination of redemption, this focal point, this apex of history was the primary emphasis of the gospel writers to include our own Mark. A full 33% of the gospel narratives cover this event. Everything else is just introduction. I frankly wish that my feeble words could make this big enough in your hearts and minds. Only the Holy Spirit can impress upon you the magnitude of of the event, and I pray that he will. We will never cover anything more important than what we cover over the next few weeks to cover the last few days of Jesus' life. It is what it's all about. So we arrive this morning at the last major section of the book of Mark. Gave you this outline in September, almost two years ago. The next three chapters, 14, 15, and 16, cover the poignant preparation, the very sad betrayal, the unfair trials, the brutal death, the bitter burial, and the glorious resurrection of our Christ. Today, we're going to begin chapter 14, which details some of that preparation for the cross leading to his arrest we look at the first 11 verses of the chapter where we're going to see the, this preparation that's kind of going on behind the scenes, his preparation for burial, and then preparation for betrayal. You see, even this is all kind of set up, kind of preparation, kind of introduction. Look at it with me, Mark 14, verses 1 to 11 say this. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth. And kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume of pure nard. And she, she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? You know, on Jesus. For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her, angry at her. And Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, even in Boone, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, 
went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And they, they were glad when they heard this and, and promised to give him money. And, and he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. So who killed Jesus? That's an important question, isn't it? It's, this, this question has caused lots of controversy. For example, in the movie that came out a few years ago called The Passion of the Christ. I'm sure you remember that there were Jewish groups that were, who were concerned that the movie was, 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 was anti-Semitic. It painted the Jews as, as Christ killers and it would release yet another wave of violence against them. And yet, as we read this passage, it sure appears that the Jews were responsible for the death of Christ. I mean, the chief priests and the scribes, those are Jewish leaders, experts in the law. They, they gathered and conspired how they might seize Jesus by self secretly in order to kill him. And later, we see that Judas, one of Jesus' own followers, went to these chief priests and agreed to betray him uh, to these Jewish leaders for 30, Matthew tells us, 30 pieces of silver. And, and, and we know the rest of the story. We know that in a few verses before the end of the chapter, Judas will succeed in his betrayal. Who killed Jesus? It seems clear. In fact, if you've been with us through our study of Mark, you know that these Jewish leaders have been plotting his death for some time. It started as early as chapter 3, where we read, The Pharisees went out and immediately been, began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. For months now, they have been trying to bait him, trap him, trip him up, and destroy him. The attacks, of course, intensified after the triumphal entry and, and during the Passion Week. Uh, the, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the attacks have come from every direction, from Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. That's the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin. They have been incensed by this man and are intent on one thing, and that is to get rid of him. These Jewish leaders seldom ever agreed on anything, but they agreed on this. Were the Jews responsible for the death of Christ? Of course they were. Even the Jewish crowds later cry out, crucify him. In his first message on the day of Pentecost, Peter said, men of Israel, listen, men of Israel, Jews, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. You saw it, you can't deny it. This man you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Seems to me case closed, men of Israel. But if you're at all familiar with the Bible, you know the Jews weren't the only ones responsible for his death. I mean, after all, Jesus has been saying that he's going to be handed over. Well, handed over to whom? Well, of course, the Gentiles. Crucifixion was not a, a Jewish means of death. It was Roman. You say, I've seen the movie, read the book. Jesus was handed over by the Jews, but it was the Gentiles who killed him. Herod, the king of the Jews, he wasn't even a Jew, he was an Idumean. And, and it was Pilate, a Roman governor, who gave the death sentence. It was Romans who beat him. It was Roman hands that, that drove the nails into his hands and to his feet and crucified him. It was a Roman spear that pierced his side. It was the Romans, you say, and again, you would be right. 
In fact, that's why later in Acts, when the early church, a couple chapters after Acts 2, lifted these words in corporate prayer to God. For for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Seems obvious, doesn't it? Both the Jews and the Gentiles were responsible for the death of Christ. And then we remember when Jesus talked several times about his coming death, at least three times. In in chapter 8, way back in Galilee, up in Caesarea Philippi, it's why he told his disciples he was going to Jerusalem. He told them that he must go and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes, the Jewish leadership, and be killed. But he would rise again the third day. Then he gives us a little more information in chapter 9 when we see that he was going to be delivered into the hands of men. What men? Who will kill him? A little more in chapter 10 where we find out for the first time he will be delivered by the Jewish leaders to Gentiles who will mistreat and kill him. So Jesus himself identified his own killers. He knew what was coming. Kind of interesting. I mean, doesn't it make you want to ask the question? I mean, if you know, why go? If it's Tuesday evening and you know that in two days, on Thursday evening, you're going to be betrayed, why not skedaddle on Wednesday? The answer lies in the question, who killed Jesus? Oh, to be sure, there was some behind-the-scenes preparation going on at the hands of the Jewish leaders, and they would arrest him and, and hand him over to the Gentile leaders who would indeed pull the trigger. But that is not the ultimate answer to the question. Jesus knew they were going to kill him, and yet he went voluntarily, and we will see silently to his death. It was, after all, the reason for which he'd come. It was the main event. We must erase from our minds once and for all any notion that Jesus was a victim, that the cross was an accident, that Jesus was a revolutionary caught up in his own grandiose idea, that he was a, that he was a person, a good person, unfortunately killed by evil men. Clearly the scripture says that this was a divine appointment, a divine plan, and the person ultimately doing the behind the scenes plotting was none other than God himself. Over and over, Jesus said, death is not coming to me, I am going to death. The cross is not choosing me, I am choosing the cross. I have the authority to lay my life down. No one can take it from me. And if I lay it down, I have the authority to take it up again. That, my brothers and sisters, is the gospel. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The scripture is full of this truth. You see, uh, the rest of Isaiah 53 says this, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God. Afflicted, pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are Heal all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way. But the Lord, that's God, that's Yahweh, has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And the Lord was pleased to crush him. Who? Putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he would see his offspring prolong his days. The good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. As the result of 
the anguish of his soul. He, God, will see it and be satisfied. Why in the world will he be satisfied with the death of his own son? Because by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many and he will bear their iniquities. Who killed Jesus? Ultimately, the answer is God is responsible for the death of his own son. No mere man could have taken Jesus' life. Later, Jesus is standing before Pilate. Remember, big, strong Pilate, who is questioning him. Pilate gets irritated at Jesus' silence and explodes. Why don't you answer me? Don't don't you know that I have power to crucify you? I have power to crucify you or to release you, to which Jesus answered. You're big, Pilate. You're strong, but you are not in charge. You would have no power over me at all if it were not given you from above. You don't get it, Pilate. Don't you realize that you're just a pawn in these proceedings? Don't you realize God is accomplishing his purposes through this evil to bring about the salvation of humankind? That is the answer. God is responsible. You may have noticed that I left some verses out in those two Acts passages. And Acts 2 actually says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Who delivered Jesus? Who handed him over? God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Do you see? It was all part of God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge. They were guilty. They perpetrated the most atrocious evil ever committed against any man. But it was all according to God's plan. And the most awful evil produced the most wonderful good. Acts 4 actually says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. I love that word. I know people get real irritated about that word predestination. But let me tell you that God even predestined the death of his own son. Who was responsible for the death of Christ? The Jews, yeah. The Gentiles, yes. <laughs> you, me, yes. God, yes. As we go through this over the next few weeks, we're going to meet some really bad guys. Caiaphas, Pilate, to name a couple. And it's going to look like they're in charge, but they're not. They think they're do- They're not. God is in charge, sovereignly in control, accomplishing his glorious purposes. So, I want you to think about that with me just a moment. Let me ask you a question. Do you you hate it when you're in the midst of a really difficult trial and and someone says to you, well, you you know that all things work together for good for those uh, who, who love God. Doesn't that sound a bit trite? in the midst of your struggle. 
Doesn't it irritate you just a little bit? I mean, how do you think the disciples uh, would have felt if someone had walked up to them after Jesus was hauled away in chains, and they watched the beatings and the crucifixion, and they come up to him and said, it's okay, boys, God's in control. He's working all of this out for your, for your good. <laughs> but let me ask you the question, is that true? And so is there anyone here right now who needs to hear that God is in control? I don't know if you're in a trial right now, and I don't want to sound trite, but, but is it possible if God was working out His purpose in the midst of the, the most heinous, awful, horrendous act ever committed, that He is also working out His purposes in whatever trial you are facing now, or will face tomorrow, or will ever face? Is that possible? Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. Passover was one of the three big festivals celebrated by the Jews. Uh, It had to be done in Jerusalem. On on the 14th day of the first month, Nisan, they they would slaughter a a lamb, a one-year-old lamb. That evening, which began for them the next day, remember the Jewish reckoned by evening, the beginning of the new day, that evening, the beginning of the 15th day, they would observe the Passover. The Passover commemorated their deliverance from Egypt after the 10th plague when the, when the death angel passed over the land. And, and those Jewish households that, that had the blood of a lamb applied to the doorpost, the angel would, would pass over that house. But if there was no blood, the firstborn in the house would die. After the plague, the Israelites left Egypt in a hurry. They, they gathered all of their goods and, and, and left. There, 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 there wasn't even time for their bread to rise. And, and so the Feast of Unleavened Bread follows Passover immediately in which they remove all of the leaven from their houses, the whole event, the Passover and the, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, from the death of the lamb on the 14th through the next seven days to the 21st, they would celebrate and, and they would remember. Now, it's two days away, meaning that what we are seeing here likely takes place on Wednesday. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth, secretly, and kill him. But, but notice, this is one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. But, but they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. Don't miss that. We're not going to take him during the Passover. They had no intention of seizing and crucifying Jesus then. The Jews' nationalism was at its height, particularly during this celebration. The governor Pilate would station extra soldiers in Jerusalem. He himself would even come from Caesarea into town. Tensions were always at an all-time high. They'd even had other riots at other times. So we won't seize Jesus then. That would put our positions of authority at risk. We don't want to start a riot. Not during the Passover, not during the festival, not at that time. But... We find that Jesus, had, or we find that God had something altogether different in mind. This is not the first time they try, they tried to kill Jesus. In fact, they they've been trying to kill Jesus since he was born. The first attempt was in the book of Matthew, chapter 2. Herod had heard that a king of the Jews was born in Bethlehem, and so he sent his soldiers to kill every male child under the age of two. Jesus escaped because, you see, it wasn't his time. He wasn't going to die that way. 
later when he began his ministry. He returned to his, home, to his hometown where he grew up, a town called Nazareth. And he was by this time known as a, a traveling rabbi. And he was called on to read from the prophets. He read from Isaiah 61, which spoke of the glorious days of the coming Messiah. Jesus stopped uh, reading, closed the book, gave it uh, back to the attendant and sat down. All eyes were on him. He looked at them and said, today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. They were furious. He was claiming to be the Messiah. They, they got up and drove him to a nearby cliff to throw him off to kill him. But the next thing that we read is he walked away right through the middle of them. You see, it was not yet his time. He would not die that way. John chapter 7, we read he became known as the man who they were seeking to kill. <laughs> he, he was a marked man, a man with a price on his head, a man destined for death. Two other times in John's gospel, the Jews picked up stones to stone him, and one in John 8 and one in John 10, and he walked away. You don't walk away from a stoning unless, well, unless it's not your time. But now, notice the religious leaders say, now is not the time. But God said, mm, no, the Passover would be the perfect time. He would become the Passover lamb, sacrificed to take away the sin of the world. That's the time, God said, when Jesus will die. The leaders who wanted him dead were saying, not now. He's got the following. People from Galilee already think he's a prophet. Just the other day, they were hailing him as the Messiah. We, we must wait until after the festival. Two days until Passover, seven days, eight days of, uh, of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, nine, ten days. Not before them. Now is not the time. But God said, now is the time. Do you see? Do you understand? They could not take him when they wanted to, and they would take him when they did not want to. The point is, God was sovereignly in control of this entire event. You are not in charge. You'll take my son when I tell you to, not before and not after either. He was orchestrating this entire plan. They were but mere pawns to carry out his bidding. Behind the scenes preparation, you bet. They just had no idea who was actually in charge. You'll take him when I say you will. That brings us to our second point, finally. In verses 3 to 9, the anointing for the burial. A beautiful story that's recorded also in Matthew and John as well. In John, we actually learn that the woman's name was Mary, of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus fame. This event actually happened, John tells us, on the day before the triumphal entry, about four days before this. The discussion with the chief priest was happening here, but John inserts this story um, for a couple of very important reasons. First, it serves as future preparation for Jesus' coming death and burial. And second, it serves as a contrast, a stark contrast, perhaps for some of you. I want you to get that. Mark is purposefully drawing a contrast between this beautiful act of devoted worship and the scheming, plotting betrayal of Jewish leaders and Judas. It's another one of his famous sandwiches. Mark inserts the story between the plotting and the betrayal as a light in the midst of darkness. Jesus is at the home of Simon the leper. Don't miss that. He's a leper. And the story is going to be told about a woman 
coming. And he's not in Jerusalem, right? He's outside of Jerusalem. Mark is highlighting this outsider-insider thing. You see, he's outside of Jerusalem. He's at the home of a, of a dreaded leper. And, and, and a woman comes and, and anoints him. Those are outsiders. And the insiders, they're in Jerusalem, right? The religious leadership. And he says, no, you don't get it. You see, the outsiders are the insiders, and the insiders are the outsiders. That's the way Jesus does things. He's at the home of Simon the leper, which means Simon must have been healed. Otherwise, no one would go to his house for a party. The, the law actually was very clear on that. Simon, I think, is another in a long list of broken people healed during Jesus' ministry. They're in Bethany. It's a couple miles east of Jerusalem. Also, Bethany is the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, which explains their presence there. In fact, Jesus had just just raised Lazarus from the dead. Two men, think of it, brought back from the dead. One figuratively, one literally. This was a very festive occasion. At some point in the, during the meal, Mary makes her way to where Jesus is reclined at the table. That's not unusual for her. She was always at the feet of Jesus, listening and learning. In fact, it would have been very common to anoint a guest with, with, with oil on his head and, and to wash his feet with water. In certain cases, with important rabbis, you might even break out the more expensive oil. But, but here, it was an alabaster vial of very costly perfume. An alabaster vial itself was, was very expensive. It would typically contain the costliest of perfumes. Mary broke the vial. This was a complete act of sacrifice. You can't use that vial anymore. She poured the entire contents all over Jesus' head. In short, she made a mess. John records the additional detail that it was about a pound of pure nard, which, which was imported from India, from the Valerian plant, as I understand. Very expensive. And John says that she poured it on his feet as well, and don't miss this, and wiped it with her hair. She made a mess. Fragrance filled the house. See that perfume was worth about 300 denarii. You may remember by now that a denarius was a day's wage for the common laborer, meaning this was about one year's wages. So let me do the math for you. How much money do you make in a year? Go ahead. Remember from your tax returns that I know you did last year. 40,000, 50,000, 100,000. How much did you make? That's how much she poured out in seemingly excessive waste on Jesus. Well, at least that's what some thought. Matthew says it was the disciples. John tells us it would, actually it was Judas Iscariot who was irritated. Mark says, some began indignantly saying to one another, why this waste? Don't miss that. They demean not only the worshiper, they demean the one worship. <laughs> she poured out all of that on Jesus. Why the waste? Jesus isn't worth that? could have sold this perfume and used the money for the poor. Passover was a special time of caring for the poor. And John tells us that Judas led the discussion because he was the keeper of the funds and he used to like to help himself to the till. He was a thief and he was irritated about the loss and so he's going to do something about that in a moment. They start attacking the woman. They're angry. 
They, they, they're scolding or they're indignant. That word is used in, in Mark chapter 10 to speak, two times. One to speak of Jesus being indignant with the disciples for preventing the children to come to him. And then once the disciples being indignant with James and John for asking for seats of honor. One on your left and one on your right. Here they are indignant and they start ta attacking the woman. Jesus puts a little different spin on it. Let her alone. Well, why, are you, why are you bothering her? What she has done for me is a good thing, more literally a beautiful thing. They quiet down and they listen. You're, you're always going to have the poor with you. Take care of the poor. He's not saying not to take care of the poor. We're supposed to, the scripture is full of that truth. We're supposed to take care of the poor. The religion that God our Father accepts is pure and faultless is this. Take care of orphans and widows in their distress, other passages. Take care of the poor, do that, but... Right now, you have me with you. And what is about to happen is more important. You see, the, the reason brokenness like poverty exists is it's because of sin and its consequences. And I'm about to take care of that problem. You're not going to have, not always going to have me with you. I, I've been telling you that I'm headed to death. And apparently, Mary, of all people, to include the disciples, is the only one who got it. Now, I, I'm not suggesting that she fully understood what she was doing. But I do know this. Jesus took her act of wasteful worship and, and, and called it preparation for his burial. And further, he said, wherever this gospel is preached, even in Boone, North Carolina, her story will be told. And here we are. What was so special about her act? Was it costly? Yes. Was it, was it sacrificial? Yes. Was it an act of worship and devotion? No doubt. Was it, was it humbling? You bet. Would you wipe someone's feet with your hair? By the way, notice she did what she could. That's very similar wording to the widow and her two mites, which is the last story in chapter 12. Then we have chapter 13, and then this story. Jesus commends the, the sacrificial giving of both women, in Mark's gospel, unnamed women, recorded in the eternal pages of Scripture. And we find, you see, it's not about the amount, it's about the sacrifice of worship. It was an act of worship everyone else thought foolish. Even the spiritual ones. Have you ever been in a position like that? Have you ever felt like that even in the church? You, you just want to worship and you don't really care what anyone else thinks. Good for you. I have one, for, one word for you. Worship. Without releasing foolish, senseless acts of self-exaltation, emotionalism, I, I do want to release you to worship, to do what may appear to some to be foolish acts of devoted worship. You see, I would suggest as we think about this that when, when unsaved, unregenerate people walk through those doors, they perhaps just come in here and all the cars, what's going on there? And they come and they see us worship, singing, clapping our hands, in some instances, hands lifted, tears flowing. 
they think us crazy. When they see us give our hard-earned money to to the work of the kingdom, and in some cases, lots of money, money you could use to, you know, buy a hot tub or a new car. <laughs> or maybe you can't afford to give that much. Maybe, maybe it would be just a sacrificial gift that could, could be used to improve your already miserable life, <laughs> like the widow's mites. And they see you give in an act of worship, no matter how the gift comes, they think you're crazy. And Jesus says, it's a beautiful act of worship. It's a good thing. Do that, no matter what everyone else thinks. Can I say to you that I want our church to be a place of worship? I didn't say running down the aisles or leaping pews or drawing attention to yourself. I mean selfless, devoted acts of worship that make no sense to people. In this case, it didn't even make sense to Jesus' closest followers. I don't even know if it made sense to Mary. But she worshipped with costly, self-giving, self-effacing sacrifice. It's like when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Some church traditions actually do that as as a practice. Wash each other's feet. How demeaning do you suppose that is? She worshipped the one she loved and she didn't care what anyone thought. And it was expensive. Well, this brings us quickly to our third point. I, out of time, back to the contrast. Back to the preparation for his death. Jesus, Judas goes and agrees to betray Jesus, Matthew tells us, for 30 pieces of silver. That's about half the price of the 300 denarii. He got back half. He's a thief. Price of a slave, by the way. Notice Judas went to them. This was a willful act of betrayal on his part. There's been lots of discussion uh, through the years about that, plays and things like that. You know, was Judas disillusioned? Was he a a zealot and and he he was hoping that Jesus would deliver them from Rome? Or or was he secretly sent by Jesus to force the hands of Jewish leadership? That's what the Gnostic gospel of, uh, of Judas says, which is an absolute heresy. It is none of those things. We will find Jesus say shortly, woe to the man who betrays me. The contrast is this, folks. Mary knew the value of Christ and she gave what she had in worship. Judas should have known. He had walked with Jesus for years and he chose to walk away, choosing instead 30 pieces of silver. And he began looking for an opportunity to betray the Son of God. She sacrificed much monetarily because of her faith. He sacrificed his faith for money. Do you see the contrast? Well, it's all been introduction up till now. We are at the climax of redemptive history. It is the story of stories. It is his story. I want to remind you that he went to the cross for us. Here's the question. So who are you this morning? Time to draw some contrasts. 
maybe you are like Judas, willing to sell your soul for 30 pieces of silver for what this world has to offer. I heard someone say once, I can tell what's important to you if I look at your checkbook. You've heard it, you've seen it, and you choose the silver. Nothing I can do about that. Only the Holy Spirit can open your heart. But maybe you're like Mary, and you're beginning to understand the magnitude of this event. I hope that in the ensuing weeks, the cross of Jesus Christ becomes more precious to you. I invite you to worship with everything that you have. Let's stand for prayer. Father, indeed, this, uh, this text, in this text, Mark draws a, a startling, a stark contrast Certainly there were religious people who were opposed to Jesus. But now we find that there was one among his number who had walked with him who betrayed him. Dare I say because there were things of this earth that were more important to him than Jesus. And in the midst of that great darkness we, we see the story of a, in Mark's gospel an unnamed woman. We know her to be Mary who loved Jesus with everything that she had, and in seemingly excessive, wasteful worship, not caring what anyone else thought, she worshiped. She loved him. So Father, would you help us um, in seemingly excessive waste to worship you with everything. In Christ's name, amen.